My name is Megan Elise, and you are listening to Two Dead Pines. And that is Ain't No Rest for the Wicked by Cage the Elephants, and thus our sound bit for this episode. Alright, before we hop right into this episode labeled Humans in War, I just want to give a quick self-promotion, I suppose. I recently joined the Twitter community. Um, It's at Two Dead Pines. So I'm guessing about 50% of you who are listening right now are on Twitter. Go ahead and follow me. I'm I'm very new to Twitter. Uh, even though I'm 18, I've never used it. But it's pretty fun. Lots of crazy stuff on there. And lots of good memes. So follow my page. You'll get some insights for upcoming episodes. And probably me just posting really crazy articles about physics, psychedelics, anything science or remotely interesting at all, and memes, I like those too, some good YouTube videos, um, some bad jokes that I'll probably post, but yeah, and I'd love to hear from you guys if you follow me and maybe reply to a post or something, so go ahead, it's at Two Dead Pines, I have currently zero followers, but the way I see it, that's, uh, it's good, because it means I have a lot of room for growth. So, yes, that concludes this little self-promotion bit, and now let's get into the episode. Alright, and so if you haven't figured it out, Cardi B is going to be our Tame Impala for this episode. So, Warfare. When two groups, when a one group of people systematically kill members of another group of people. The year 2020 has brought many meme-worthy yet no less serious concerns into everybody's life at the current moment. From the coronavirus pandemic to killer hornets to Australian wildfires, the internet can't help but speculate on the unfortunate events of this year, which isn't even over yet take it or leave it. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we're still here. It's still 2020. Most of the things are simply effects we're seeing from larger causes like climate change, so it's basically the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. But that's a discussion for another time. One of the scares that came earlier in the year was the threat of World War III. If you were on the internet at all in 2020, I'm sure you've heard of this. And in an age where hyperbole and exaggeration is the name of the game thanks to social media. This supposed war seemed to me, at least, more of a TikTok trend rather than actual news, where you would see teens who were obviously 18 or older making jokes about being drafted into World War III or whatever. But it was based in fact, which might be unusual for TikTok, but yes, tensions between the US and Iran were and still are rising. However, the media and entire Twitter population has a very short attention span. So on the eyes of the public, the war is over. Or the upcoming war that might have happened is past. The threat's gone. But I want to stick with the notion of World War III for this episode. Because humanity hasn't experienced a war in 75 years. 
In the long run, that isn't a huge amount of time. But our world has already changed so drastically that it makes you wonder, what would war look like in the 21st century? And I am aware that there are wars going on currently, both literal and figurative, like the war on climate change, for example. But all the world wars currently taking place don't amount to the entire globe being at war. And, and this is not to belittle or degrade all conflict going on today. It's simply to acknowledge that there's a difference between, say, a civil war and an all-out global war. So about a week ago, I finished reading the book Cherokee Dragon, right here, by Robert J. Conley, who is a Native American author. This book was a historical fiction that depicts the Cherokee warrior known as Dragon Canoe and his fight to protect the Cherokee nation and its land when the uh, settlers, European settlers and colonists came and, you know, started the whole ass fight. The book begins in the 1730s and takes the reader through a detailed history all the way up to the famous Trail of Tears, which, for those of you who don't know because you're not American, or for those of you who don't know because you are American but were never taught this in school, the Trail of Tears was the displacement of the Cherokee Nation from their ancestral lands by the U.S. federal government, and many, many Cherokee people died due to starvation, cold weather, illness, and the fact that they were forced to walk hundreds of miles just to relocate as the government sees fit. So the book covers from the 1730s up to this, all the way up to the 1980s. And when reading this book, I was struck by the sheer violence of the war between the natives and the colonists. On both sides, there were murders of men, women, children, the burning of villages and crops, the scalping of victims, hacking, shooting, and stabbing. Yeah, it was a war in which everyone was involved, whether you wanted it or not. It's all-out war, and it's war where the young men rejoiced in the killing of others and were filled with hate and rage that they brought with them as they brutally murdered their enemies. Coming out of this daze, like, I'm reading the book, I'm reading about all this violence, and I come out of it and look up at the Western society I currently abide in, I can't help but think to myself, how did we go from this just a few centuries ago? to such a humanitarian stance on life. I don't know about my choice to use uh, Cardi B's Invasion of Privacy album for this podcast. It just feels... (laughs) I don't know, it feels a bit disrespectful to talk about these wars with violence and stuff and then just play a soundtrack where it's like bragging about Lamborghinis and Gucci and stuff like that. But, you know what? It's uh, it's just a good representation of our time right now. Or of the times we live in. Alright, before we get too deep in the discussion of the previous stated question, let's take a delve into the history of war in mankind. So this seems like a pretty big subject to cover, and I'm not going to lie to you, it is a very big subject to cover, but I'm only going to give a brief overview, which I think you'll find quite fascinating, 
with, that I found quite fascinating as well. So let's start out when humans were just primitive beings. And honestly, you could still argue that we are today. But humanity has dragged its long and bloody history across the globe for ages. Beginning with the hunter-gatherers. This was before the agricultural revolution, before the scientific revolution, before the industrial revolution. What did war look like? What did humans fight for? The hunter-gatherers were hunter <laughs> The hunter-gatherers were hunter-gatherers. That is true. But they were prehistoric nomadic groups that harnessed the use of fire, developed intricate knowledge of plant life, and refined technology for hunting and domestic purposes that they spread from Africa to Asia, Europe, and beyond. And, as it turns out, they didn't have much war. I bet that's not what you guys were expecting me to say, but it's true. They really didn't fight that much between groups. And this could be due to the fact that these groups were so far apart and sparse that perhaps they didn't bother each other too much. And since they were constantly hunting and gathering, you know, hence the name hunter-gatherers, they were constantly searching for food to sustain them and fleeing predators. Full-out war with another band probably wasn't much on their mind. Didn't really seem like a good use of time. In fact, it, most killings of hunter-gatherers in this time, 85% of the time, the killer and victim came from the same society. Men were most often the killers, and the incentive for killing varied. It could be for revenge, for fighting for women, just some petty dispute between two men. If you want to follow the history of war, you want to start with tracking the patterns of violence in these primitive groups, right? Which we just looked at, and it seems like there wasn't much violence between groups, but there was violence inside groups. So anthropologists had concluded that warfare did not rise or start with the hunter-gatherers. Until, that is, when a more recent discovery came about in 2012. Archaeologists stumbled upon something disturbing, to say the least, in Naturak, near Lake Nurkana in Kenya, and apologize for butchering these pronunciations, but anyway, they found the remains of at least 27 people, unburied and exposed to the elements. After some close analysis, what the archaeologists were able to conclude was that these ancient people died in violent ways as a result of a massacre. So this is kind of a big find, because as we just previously discussed, many anthropologists believe that prehistoric hunter-gatherers didn't engage in any kind of systematic warfare as was on display at Natarok. Since they didn't have land or stores of food to fight over, they didn't really fight at all, or so they, or so we thought. But the scientists who found this massacre site proposed two explanations. Either the Natarok people lived in a more settled lifestyle than scientists thought, or organized warfare arose much earlier. Well, the only way to know for sure is to find more evidence of prehistoric massacres. So starting at the hunter-gatherers to try to track war in mankind, it's kind of hard to draw a conclusion. But we do know that since the beginning, humans have been violent.
Alright, moving beyond the hunter-gatherer time in history, let's look into tribal wars. This would be after the agricultural revolution, which marks the time when humans stopped foraging and began growing their own food and domesticating animals. This could arguably have made life harder, as it resulted in less leisure time, leisure time, and eventually contributing to the change of changing of the environment that still persists today. Although the agricultural revolution did have its upsides, such as supporting larger populations and not depending entirely on whether you find food or not. Also, it began the set concepts of settlements and towns. So after this time, so, you know, tribes are already planting their own foods and crops, roughly in the 18th century, um, there were, of course, wars happening between tribes all over the globe, but since the book I mentioned earlier concerned North American tribes, I'm most likely going to focus on these. Many of these wars took place over the things anthropologists didn't think the hunter-gatherers would have to fight over, land and resources. But not the land itself as a materialistic thing, which is actually a very Western way of looking at it. To quote, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation also, but to quote Massasoit, who was a leader of the Wampanoag Confederacy, Quote, what is this you call property? It cannot be the earth, for the land is our mother, nourishing all of her children, beasts, birds, fish, and all men. The woods, the streams, everything on it belongs to everybody and is for the use of all. How can one man say it belongs only to him? End quote. So not the land itself, but they fought for hunting grounds, ancestral burial grounds, access to rivers, etc. Perhaps it begins like this, um, fighting for these things, but then before you know it, neighboring tribes have feuds and there are raids and deaths that must be avenged by more raids and deaths, and then it just becomes this ongoing cycle. And since this was before the introduction of guns and steel into North America, Many of these conflicts between tribes were fought with bow and arrow, stone, tomahawks, and clubs. There were ceremonial ceremonies that preceded each fight. There were war cries and ceremonial face and body paint. Young men would earn honor through these wars, through fighting. That's how they would earn a namesake. That's how they would earn rank in a tribe. So, a little fast forward to when the colonists, like Spanish, French, and English, dropped their ships in the land now known as America, bringing forth guns, germs, and steel. And I just want to point out that if you hear any loud gunshot-like sounds in this podcast, it's because today is the 4th of July, and that's pretty, what a coincidence, since we're talking about wars and the Revolutionary War is what we're celebrating the victory of today. Well, some people are. Anyway, so the war between the self-proclaimed Americans and the native tribes flared up, obviously, around this time. And if you ask any American, and I apologize if you're not from America, because this surely seems very Eurocentric, but the fact is, I know enough about war in America to talk about it, thanks to my public education that took place in America. 
although war in history in other parts of the world, like Africa and Asia, of which I have read a few books about, is equally as intriguing and complex, so maybe in the future I can focus a podcast on that. But anyways, if you ask any American what the natives were fighting for, the main answer would be for their land. The natives were fighting to keep their land. The Americans kept pushing west, kept intruding on the natives' land, creating treaties that would result in the natives having to give up more land. So, this is true, right? Okay, the natives wanted to keep the land that, that the Americans kept pushing for, and they weren't willing to give it up. However, this is when a new part of war comes in that we haven't yet discussed. The War of Identity. Not only was Dragon Canoe the great Cherokee warrior fighting to keep his ancestral land, he was fighting to keep the Cherokee nation alive. His whole people, which the U.S. was trying to disband and make disappear, alive. All of the culture, the clothing, the lifestyle, the ceremonies, the religion, the language. Language is crucial to an identity of a nation. To quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, quote, we, infer the spirit, we infer the spirit of the nation in great measure from the language, which is a sort of monument to which each forcible individual in a course, if many hundred years, has contributed a stone. End quote. So, basically, what's happening here is the Americans are stripping the natives of their identity, and this is a war that's being fought. And one of the examples I'd like to pull up um, to kind of show this, to this identity stripping to you, is in the book The Cherokee Dragon, it discusses the role of women in Cherokee society and how already traditional Cherokee society is changing as a result of the white people who come in. So, for example, the women, it's actually very interesting, the women in these native, in at least this particular native society, were the head of the household, their children took their namesake, and they owned the house, and when they got married, the men would come and live with them and their family, and then the women, oh, since they owned the teepee and everything, they could kick the man to the curve. The men did not um, order the women around because, again, they weren't the head of the family. And I think there was this one part of the book where someone said to a Cherokee man, can't you, tell, can't you just control your wife? And he says... I can't tell my wife to do that. I can't control her. If I control her, she'll kick me to the curb because she owns everything. What are you going to do? And there was really, the women voices were very respected in decision making in the Cherokee Nation as well. But then as the whites started to come in and they would start to marry the Cherokee women, um, the white men were the head of the household. And I think everyone um, probably is kind of understanding the Western the Western influence of men in household. It's like the men are the dominant head and the women are the housekeepers, raise their children, they don't own anything, they're technically the man's property and they have to obey everything the man does. So then the Cherokee men would see how the white men were um, the heads of their household and they're like, wow, we want to be heads of our household. And then suddenly the women started losing all of their independence and power that they had uh, previously had in the Cherokee Nation and their own people 
their own society as a result of the white society coming in and kind of infiltrating the native one. Alright, that was a pretty big spiel, so I'm going to play some music. Just to So this war was personal, okay? That's what we just established. It's even more personal because not only were the young men fighting for honor and to preserve their lifestyle, everybody on both sides was fighting out of hatred, out of revenge. Women were raped, children were scalped, villages were burned, brothers and sisters were brutally murdered. Geronimo, who is a great Apache warrior, came home one day to find the Mexicans had pillaged his village and all of his children and wife murdered. From then on, he was feared as a brutal killer because what did he have? What did he have to fuel him as this brutal killer? He had revenge. He had anger. He had hatred towards the people that had killed his children, killed his wife, burned his home. So this was a war, they were fighting for their land, and they were fighting for their people, but they were also fighting out of hatred and out of anger, rightfully so, on both sides there was lots of murder. So compare this to, say, the Vietnam War, where you have young men flown in, and this war isn't personal, all their family, their, all their homes, all their stuff is at home, it's safe. There's no honor in it. They won't receive appreciation when they return home. They're not fighting for... I suppose they are fighting for some Galligan um, cause, but it's not personal to them. It's not their own culture. So what the hell are they even fighting for? Compare that war to the war of the 18th century. Religion, race... The idea of us and them, this is what you will find has begun to dominate the playing field of war and humanity. Between 1914 and 1918, planet Earth saw a war which by the end of it, roughly 17 million human lives have been lost. Compared to the 6,800 killed in the Revolutionary War and the 1.3 million in the Vietnam War, this is a gigantic amount of life lost. What were they fighting for? The causes of World War I are pretty well defined. Mutual defense alliances, imperialism, you know, the increasing competition, desire for greater empires, led to an increase in confrontation that helped push the world into this war. You had militarism, <laughs> countries were increasing their armed forces, nationalism, each country wanted to prove their dominance and power, and of course, the assassination of Archduke Franz Fernand, Fernand, whatever, of Austria-Hungary. When then, you know, everyone started declaring war on each other because they were allies, and the rest is history. So what real cause were all the countries fighting for? Nothing as noble as saving one's people, more as trying to maintain a role as a world power. What did this war look like? 
nothing like steel tomahawks. World War I is best known for its trench warfare, which was soldiers fighting from dug-in positions, striking at each other with machine guns, heavy artillery, and chemical weapons. Obviously, World War I has bookloads of history, because I just gave you maybe a five-second spiel, but we're going to move on to World War II. So, the Treaty of Versailles is a treaty that Germany was forced to sign and accept guilt that says it has to accept guilt for World War I and pay repercussions. So, this caused Germany to experience a great period of economic depression in which civilians looked to great political leaders to get them out. This man was no other than the man, the myth, the legend, Hitler. It was Hitler. He saw great things for Germany and set out with such ambitious goals, but we all know the horrific events that followed. The Holocaust, Germany invading neighboring countries, then Japan started invading countries, and then all the other countries were, um, to put it lightly, not cool with it, and thus began a war that ended up killing an astronomical amount of 85 million people. And in this war, weapons look like pistols. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, machine guns, hand grenades, flamethrowers, airstrikes, bombs, gas chambers, tanks, V2 rockets, and all sorts of terrible, destructive machines. So, looking from the World Wars, a tribal, the tribal versus colonist, tribes versus tribes, hunters and gatherers, I'd say we've come a long way in our ability to wreak havoc on each other. And I'm not sure if our wars have become more noble or more well-defined. If anything, I think the wars, the world wars, just became more confusing and more about politics and global affairs. I mean, obviously, that's the most obvious thing to say, but rather than fighting for your people's freedom or your people's culture a lot of these wars are based on some level on identity and for us of all i mean i'm gonna get into this later but i still think it's just so stupid how we're still fighting each other over religion and race i think we're never going to advance as a species if we keep doing that. But again, we're going to get into that later. But right now, not only would I like to point out the enormous advancements mankind has made in their technologies, we are now, I mean, come on, we're capable of wiping out 85 million people in the same war. The globalization of humanity, the technological advancement of humanity, have both brought amazing benefits and improvements to our species. But there is always a flip side. And we can see this flip side as we walk through the history of war and humans. And as we see them grow less personal, yet bigger and bloodier and more destructive. Where does that leave us now in the 21st century? We haven't had a year... I mean, we haven't had a war in nearly a century. Our technologies have leaped in advancements. Look at the nuclear bomb. We now can engage in nuclear warfare. Our planet can be described as a global village thanks to the internet that can connect us in seconds. 
news spreads like wildfires. So what would war look like? What would we fight over? I think it's important to acknowledge that as a global society, oh my, I'm sorry, coming in after Cardi, uh, my voice just sounds so limp and strange. Okay, I think it's important to acknowledge that as a global society, our values have collectively, at least for the most part, shifted in the philosophical view of mankind. We have entered an age of humanism. Humanism is, according to its very own Wikipedia page, quote, a philosophical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings, individually and collectively, end quote. Human rights are widely advocated for. Science is promoted to better human life. We want more education, widespread education, medicine, better living conditions, these are all important factors our countries strive for. They strive for this. Now, of course it seems obvious and a bit unusual to have to state this idea that you know every human life is important and valuable. But the truth is, this ideolo ideology that's a word, probably, has not always been around. In the times of divine rulings, kings and queens were said to be chosen by God, and therefore divine rulers and valuable were valuable human life, while peasants were seen as considerably less equal and unworthy. In the times of slavery, enslaved persons were seen as non-human, their lives were not seen as valuable as the enslaver. In so many past societies, the rich and powerful were full humans, while the poor and underprivileged were not. So the idea nowadays that all humans are important and equal and deserve the same rights is unfortunately not a concept that has followed us throughout history. Obviously, humanism isn't going to stop countries from completely annihilating each other, but it's still an interesting add-on to our time. Alright, let's talk about the coronavirus for a moment. I know it's such a popular subject, and everyone loves hearing about it because we never hear about it. Not like it's every single day of our lives. But let's talk about it. Lots of rumors fly around the origins of this globally spread diseases, one of them being that it escaped from a lab in which it was artificially created. I have no idea whether this is true or not, um, not but it brings us to this interesting concept of biological warfare. The use of biological toxins or infectious, infectious agents such as bacteria, viruses, insects, and fungi with the intent to kill or incapitate humans, animals, plants, and as an act of war. It is a very real possibility that a country planning a war in another country could create a disease in their labs and then secretly spread it to the opposing country, killing and weakening their people before attacking. Of course, you would have to create vaccines for your own people, and somehow have a plan if this virus gets out of control. 
So I'm not entirely sure what biological warfare would look like it if we were to engage in it in the future, which is a realistic possibility. Because I'm not sure that the creators of this disease would make sure they have a vaccine ready and would make sure they have a backup plan because humans very much lack the tendency to plan ahead. Look at the space junk effect that we have, the Kepler effect. We have so much space junk orbiting Earth right now that every time we send out more satellites and more rockets, it just gets worse and soon we're going to be trapped here. And when we first started sending out rockets, we didn't know about it. But now we know about space junk, so we should be able to plan ahead and come up with a solution before we start sending out even more stuff. But we don't, because we don't plan ahead. So in the 21st century, if biological warfare is an option that's going to be used, it's probably not going to go well. As I can't imagine anything going well for humans in war would happen. Another option for 21st century war is such a loser way to put it, but hacking. I don't have a better word because I'm not... Um, I don't, computer person is also a terrible word to use because that just makes it... I just don't know what else to use besides hacking, so we're going to use hacking. Not the kind of hacking with an axe, the kind of hacking with a computer. So it could be a powerful technique in the 21st century war. If you were in Australia, you could hack into a New York subway station and cause the train to run off course. A terrorist attack from thousands of miles away. I don't know what people could do with this, but we all have phones, right, that, well... Everyone usually in a first world country has smartphones that they carry with them at all times. Virtually another limb. I mean, I could see a lot of terrorists, a lot of other countries being able to do something with our phones, hack into our phones. What would we do with our phones? We couldn't go anywhere. I, I don't know. There's a lot of possibility for um, pan, like pandemonium to be to be open there. I don't want to open that can of worms if that's the expression, but there's a lot of room for dangerous and terrifying weapons there. Like drone facial recognition also, not to mention atomic bombs that could literally wipe out all of humankind. And I once read in the book Homo Deus by Yuval Harari, which I mentioned in my other podcast, What is Reality, which you guys should all go watch if, or listen to if you haven't yet, because it's very... Ooh, mind-shattering. That's a good word. But anyway, in this book, I read that with increased technology, war could simply mean pressing a button and letting computers send drones and missiles and hacking into other systems, and the whole war could be over in a span of minutes without any human interference. It's simply just a computer war because the computers, this AI, these algorithms will handle it so much better and so much more efficiently and know what to do. And, yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine 21st century war could be anything like the hand-to-hand -hand combat of the tribal wars or the trench warfare from World War I. If World War III does break out anytime soon, we are staring into a void of impersonal, total destruction. Thanks to the globalization and technology of humanity, but I don't know. It could honestly go the opposite way as well. We could go back to these hand-to-hand -hand combats if society collapses and we resort to fighting with guns and steel.
This was a long and strenuous history. And that was very loud. Okay. Apologize for that. Prediction of human war that if you're still listening right now, hopefully you found it interesting and somewhat tiring, as did I. (laughs) What I love most about this podcast is actually I can just like... I, I mean, it's summertime, and I can just, I'm, I have a job, and I work, but in my free time, I'm able to research, you know, any subject that interests me, and just talk about it. So here's a question that I have for you, as a listener of Two Dead Pines. Are you violent? I suspect, and hope, I suppose, that the majority of you will answer no. It is probable that many people who live in what the Western world deems a civilized society have violent thoughts, but just don't act on them. Does that make us less violent? I find it hard to believe that we can go from murdering, hanging, scalping, stabbing, to working in a passive-aggressive office with a 9-to-5 job in just, well, not many years at all. This violence has to have gone somewhere, or maybe it just didn't leave at all. We see it in cities, intercommunity conflicts, bar fights, street fights, the cartel, the mob, homicides, serial killers. But this doesn't amount to the violence that generations of a people of people experienced, like the native people and African Americans in America. It's true that in the wake of our humanism era, we have come and rightly so, to respect human life for what it is, valuable and important. So we are much less likely to want to take another human's life, right? It could also be that we have no incentive, so to speak, to kill, to be violent. No enemies that pillage our towns and communities that are trying to strip our culture. I do want to point out, however, in the light of all the protests happening in America and beyond, that this is not the case for every group living in the world, because there has been an outbreak of violence, looting, and burning, which is a response to communities and a group of people being targeted and threatened. So maybe humans do have this side of them when incentives arise, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. In this subject of violence and humanity, it's not a clear-cut subject. There's many shades of gray in the middle. There's no right or wrong. There's no answer. So that makes it a little bit difficult to discuss because you can't really draw a conclusion. But until recently, we have been fairly nonviolent in, you know, a big picture sense compared to our very violent past. But that trauma... That violence has stuck with us, perhaps in a place we were not expecting. The transgenerational effects of trauma experienced by certain peoples, such as the displacement of American Indians and the enslavement of African Americans, are not only psychological, but you see them in families, societies, cultures, communities, it's neurobiological, and possibly even genetic as well.
So, Dr. Bezo was of, I think, Russia, was kind of wondering about these effects of trauma in everyday life, modern life, generational trauma. So, he talked with a bunch of people referencing the Holodomor, which is the mass starvation of millions of Soviet Ukrainians from 1932 to 1933, considered by many to be an intentional genocide orchestrated by Joseph Stalin. So he was wondering if and how this horrific event would continue to resonate with people. So Dr. Bezo conducted a study of 45 people from three generations of 15 Ukrainian families, those who have lived through the Holodomor, their children and their grandchildren. People spontaneously shared what he saw, what they saw as transgenerational impacts from that time, including risky health behavior, anxiety and shame, food hoarding, overeating, author authoritarian parenting styles, high emotional neediness on the parts of parents, and low community trust and cohesiveness. And many described that they felt to be living in what they would call, quote, survival mode. And this effect of transgenerational trauma is not, this is not the only case of it being reported. In a well-known study, um, in a well-known study with 32 Holocaust survivors and 22 of their children, they found that the Holocaust survivors and their children showed changes in the same location of the same gene, a stress gene, uh, it's known as FKBP5, if that means anything to you guys, and it's related to PTSD and depression. So the children of Holocaust survivors didn't actually live through the Holocaust, they're just the children of the survivors, but their genes were still altered. That's crazy that they have this trauma they didn't even live through, but they're affected because of it. And it's linked to they're going to be higher risk for PTSD and depression. So when people say the past is in the past and to get over it because it was centuries ago, it makes you think that they really have no idea what they're talking about. Because, first of all, not only did the past shape our present, our present wouldn't be the same today if it wasn't the past. It didn't just appear. Nothing just popped up out of nowhere. It took centuries for it to shape what we have today. But not only does it do that, the past follows us in our lineage and creates our circumstances that we live in today, whether that's mental or physical. Each and every one of us, whether you know it or not, comes from a line of people, each with their own stories and their own struggles, and all of them, all of them led up to where we are today. And it's not a coincidence. Our circumstances are not a coincidence. They are a direct cause, a direct cause of our ancestors and of our lineage and of the past. Our physical state, where we live, how we live, what kind of jobs our parents have, what kind of schools we go to, and our mental state, just like the Holocaust survivors, their children, have these genes changed to make them more likely for PTSD and depression. Our mental states, we might think, oh, that's just how it is. We have depression, we have anxiety, but that can be a direct cause of our past, of our ancestry. So 
like it or not, the past is not in the past because it affects the present. And it, a lot of a lot of what we are seeing today is a result of the violence of humanity in the past. So back to the original question I asked you, are you violent? Well, by now, you probably have some sort of answer, and I'm sure it isn't either yes or no. I'm sure it's a yes, well, or a no, but, and to be honest, I'm not even sure how I'd answer it myself. I don't consider myself a violent person, but of course I still have violent thoughts, and and I don't know, because it's in our history, it's in our blood, it's in our genes. Where does that leave us now as seemingly nonviolent creatures where we actually are kind of violent on the inside and are affected by all this violence? I guess you could say, well, we're only human. So, homo sapiens, meaning wise man, we are plagued by a bloody history from the very beginning, our advancement in technology leading to wider and greater destruction. Violence is, it would seem, a part of our nature. We are primitive, after all. It certainly has and continues to shape our world, and as we had just learned, our children and our future generations. Hopefully one day we can cross the threshold from primitive to advanced, I suppose we could call it, where we stop fighting over small differences such as skin color, religion, and culture, and we reach a stage where we can unite as humans. And, and maybe when we reach this stage we can go off and colonize other planets because we don't see ourselves as separate groups of humans. We're just one human, and now it's just us against the universe. And, uh, but then we'll probably fight other aliens until we realize we're all just life forms. So, I don't know. I predict a lot of violence in our future, even if we make it off the planet. But you know what? Right now, our goal is to unite as humans. That's the goal, and who knows? Maybe we will fall back into a stage where humanism isn't even the name of the game anymore and suddenly no one appreciates all human life or maybe we will fight ourselves to extinction. Homo sapiens aren't even, haven't even reigned the longest over the earth. Homo erectus is the longest lived of all human species. So it really makes you think we're not that special, um, we're not that advanced because we're still fighting each other and over small things every day. But like I said earlier, the subject of humans and violence is not a black and white subject. It's it's shades of gray and it's so hard to discuss and it's so hard to draw a conclusion that I can't even I don't even know how to conclude this. I can't even pretend to know the point of it all or spin it in a positive light because the fact is it's fucking terrible. The genocides, the war, the blatant violence we see today in America, war for mankind is far from over. We can only hope that we, in a back, lack of better words, grow out of it. We mature as a species.
only then can we truly live in a peaceful, human humanian, is that even a word? Just a peaceful, humanism style utopia. You to live your life, of course, but I hope you get what you're dying for. Be careful. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Two Dead Pines. Make sure to check out our Twitter at Two Dead Pines. And I'm Megan Elise. And catch you next time.